there's an Instagram of lost J crew stuff. Yeah. And I started just like saving them. And it's like, I don't have the cataloging instinct as strong as you do, but I do have a certain like collect and covet kind of yeah. mentality where I just sort like, and I'll just download a photo and it feels so good. Cause I'm like, mm, I have it now. <laughs> like, All right. That's mine. Time to sort yeah. it into something. Yeah. But mostly everything I have that I like, I save into one big folder called nice to look at. And it's like clothing, but also architecture, but also like illustrations from the golden age of illustration and all yeah. that. like it's just all mixed together but i kind of i don't know i see that all as like a very similar thing so is that like a folder on your like iphone images yeah, it's an iphotos thing yeah. yeah it'd be so much smarter if i did like sub photos i just don't i don't know like everything else there's nice to look at and there's everything else on my phone you know i'm not gonna like go through and sort out my memes or anything it's just yeah. not how i'm gonna spend my day yeah um, no i mostly have like really chaotic memes downloaded like yeah. did you see my nuke in the club <laughs> yeah no, that's a good one um all right shall we get right into it yeah hello welcome to silent generation i'm joseph i'm nathan and this week our topic is the 1970s yeah which is a really fun topic for me because it is actually my least favorite decade but i've reevaluated <laughs> it and i see a lot of beauty now in a lot of the aesthetics of the 70s but also just like knowing what the vibe was more than before like i can distinguish the 70s from the 80s now whereas before those two decades would blend together for me mm, interesting yeah i would say i don't know i think the 70s are pretty like frozen in my mind i think i have a strong like visual language associated with it but yeah hammering down the culture a little bit more I find it interesting in some of the stuff i was reading online they'd split stuff into early 70s and late 70s which is like, I feel yeah. like I've always advocated for that. Like decades are too big. Like things can really be sorted into like half decades and you're getting close to it, you know, in terms yeah. of what's actually happening. And then as we talk about like cultural acceleration and stuff, like the half decade is not even useful anymore. It feels like two and a half years is a good kind of yeah. <laughs> measurement of time. One thing on that for me is I realized that I think of the 70s as being very essentialist and essentialist in the sense of there being like the most extreme aesthetic. I don't think about the more like the less outrageous seventies clothing. Mm -hmm. To me, I yeah. jump straight into like bell bottoms mm -hmm. and stuff that like I would personally never wear. Yeah. As we look back at decades, I remember seeing some meme posted by like a Gen Xer and it was like, when people think you grew up in the eighties and it pictures like bright neon, you know, just like skin tight, lycra, like yeah. teased out hair. And it's like, no, I, I grew up in the eighties and it's just like, brown carpet wood paneled walls like yeah. fake wood sided that like as i was just talking about you know culture moves so fast it also like does lag a fair bit you know people in the 80s were living in homes built in the 70s like there was still that kind of like i don't know not everything could be neon all the time there was also that brown kind of energy yeah. coming from the 70s and one of my favorite things about the 70s is the color brown which we can get to in a minute but mm -hmm. i want to know though what your favorite decade is I would say the 60s and as you can probably guess not like the hippie side of it too much yeah. <laughs> definitely the more square side of it I like the early 60s because uh, some people will guess like oh I bet you like the 1950s Joseph and it's like no like not everything was in color yet yeah I think and which is the 50s had really great colors and like menswear and design um, but it was kind of bottlenecked by the fact that it couldn't be shown too much in print or visual media because that wasn't as big yet but yeah, I also heard from someone that like life in the 60s, especially the 
early to mid 60s felt like indistinguishable from the 50s other than the fact that when you looked at things they were in color apparently <laughs> like, was yeah. the only thing they could narrow down like we picture this like idyllic 1950s existence of like a dominant growing america you know that is at least talking about equality if not achieving it <laughs> yet yeah you know optimism and just like endless yeah just optimism is i think the right word for it that then kind of peters out in the 70s yeah what made you want to do this episode of the 70s as opposed to the 60s, though? Because I think that, like, I think the turning points are really interesting. I think that, like, the party ending, in any sense, is, like, where you learn the most about things. Yeah. And I think that, like, a lot of the problems and stuff that we talk about, like, just in general and also on this podcast, like, everything started in the 70s, it feels. Yeah. Like, whenever you look at anything, it's, like, when did things become a little less... Like, it seems like there's a jarring flip in a lot of like just the ways people live their lives, like between pre and post, not hinging on a single year or anything, but um, a lot of change. Also, I just entered the season of Mad Men where they're in the 70s and it's they try and be subtle about it at first. Like, I think it's at the end of the fourth season or so, like people's sideburns start to grow out. But just like they flip a switch the second they start the new season, like everyone has a different haircut, like everyone is much more 70s before yeah how many seasons were there of mad men i think there's seven okay i'm obsessed with it (laughs) yeah it's fun no it's fine i mean people do get obsessed with mad men like i remember one time when i was single there was a guy that like i went like i went on a few dates with and he kept making me want to go to bars with him because he was watching mad men and i was getting (laughs) so irritated because i don't drink uh and yeah it was Kind of disappointing, but I did watch 10 episodes of it and it was very well done visually. Mm -hmm. I just, I like actively didn't want to watch it because like as I was kind of getting more into like classic men's clothing and IV style and all that, I didn't want to be like affected by the show. I wanted to like more maturely develop my style and then watch like what is the late 2000s view of the 1960s into 70s. Yeah. What's your favorite decade? Mine is probably like, the 1910s but it could very easily be in the 1920s mm-hmm. um same goes too for like my most disliked one being the 70s but it's also close with the 80s as well mm-hmm. but yeah i like the 1910s just because there was so much accomplished before the start of world war one mm-hmm. and then i mean just think if like no, world war one never happened the number of subways and skyscrapers in american cities would have like been substantially larger yeah. I mean, if you think about like Cincinnati subway that never got completed, oh, yeah. I, if World War One never happened, it would have been completed. Yeah. So there's like losses like that. Yeah, but, it's I don't know. It felt like, you know, when after World War Two ended and kind of like cities gave themselves full license to destroy <laughs> like pre-war yeah. stuff, if they had built up just a little bit more like I mean, you can see that like, yeah, I guess let's take Cincinnati. You said Cincinnati, right? Yeah. Yeah. Like. New York had so much built up ahead of World War II that despite their best efforts, they couldn't destroy all of it. You know, when yeah. like Cincinnati had less built up so they could destroy more of it. <laughs> yeah. I heard it described once online that the American cities that kept their public transit systems did so due to like geographical restrictions, especially mm-hmm. if you think about the built up urban landscape being a geological restriction because yeah. there couldn't be as many cars on the road. But this goes as well too for light rail, like cities like Pittsburgh, San Francisco, which are really hilly. They kept part of their light rail system, cable cars, trams, things like that, because there are hills and there are mountains in Pittsburgh. It's like it was harder to convert those corridors into, say, a highway or something. 
Yeah. So they just kept the light rail that they had. They were protected over <laughs> highways. Yeah. yeah. Oh man, it's yeah. interesting. I would say you mentioned least favorite decades. This might be cheating because it's so close, but I really don't like the 2000s. I know that like the usual thing of how culture changes is that like whatever is like there's that period before you get nostalgic for things where you don't like, yeah. you know, where things come off as cringe or like incomplete or bad. Um, but the 2000s just there was this like crassness in public media that I just didn't like. I just still short. Yeah. Stuff like that. Like. <laughs> And those are always very basic to yeah. hate on. Like, the, I mean, if you ask the average person, they're like, oh, yeah, those people suck. And it's like, well, then why are we like encouraging this and watching this? Not that we should. Yeah. like. And the thing is, I like like transgressive art and media. I just don't really like it in my pop culture. Like, I, yeah. <laughs> I don't know. Maybe this is very like elitist of me. But like, yeah, I want to see transgressive things in an expensive museum <laughs> like, you know, yeah. like a, or like at like a crummy DIY show or something. Like, I don't want to like turn on daytime television and see like, yeah, I don't know, just really gross stuff. Whenever I visit my relatives in California and I see what they're watching on TV, I realize how much of TV is kind of dumb and it's made <laughs> for people that are kind of dumb, like I yeah. tend to watch, I mean, I don't really watch TV right now, but mm -hmm. if I watch something on Netflix or HBO, I do want it to meet like a certain criteria of mm -hmm. merit. I do really like though, from the mid two thousands, Teen Mom 2. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Teen Mom 2, The Reckoning. <laughs> yeah. I started watching it one year yeah. on Mother's Day as a joke, mm -hmm. but it was it's like a time capsule where you see all of these like mid two thousands outfits and mm -hmm. one of the girls over the course of the first few seasons, she starts working as a hairdresser and all of her friends are hairdressers and they just have the most like wacky mid 2000s haircuts. With, like, um, <laughs> I was talking about that, about like that there should be a name for how like hairdressers always have bad hair. And it's like if you have something where like you only get one thing, you only have one hair. Yeah. And yet you're surrounded by like all the possible permutations for it. And your whole job is thinking about it like you're eventually just going to burrow too deep into mm. it and you're going to try things that no one should try because you think about it all the time like yeah it's just you're around it too much it's bad for you like you should only think like everyone else gets the benefit of only thinking about their hair during a haircut and then in a little styling like yeah. every day yeah. yeah yeah i think that for architects too there's sort of the same effect where i mean you work in architecture mm -hmm. and although more interior architecture mm -hmm. but i do think though that there's a lot of like whack architects out there <laughs> and i'm not a fan of what they do yeah because i think about it too much like given the chance to make their own home it becomes too architecty and yeah. like people will often like when they're sh like showing off a home they're like this was an architect's home so it has all these, all these bizarre details in it and all these peculiar things and i'm like uh, versus when people say like oh this was a builder's home so you know it's really built well yeah and i hate to like have any kind of like builder's architect dichotomy just because that always kind of makes me cringe especially with like I remember studying engineering and then people would like invite me to engineering meme pages and it's all about how like realistic and correct they are when everyone else is like, you know, pie in the sky thinking and I always thought that yeah. was really lame to see yourself as that. Um, yeah. Yeah. But yeah, I do want to address a little bit more why I'm largely antagonistic towards the 70s and it's largely just aesthetic, but it also is not a very good time to live through in America, both politically and economically. There are a bunch of crises that were difficult to live through, like urban renewal, stagflation, declining union membership, the 1973 to 1975 recession, the energy crisis, and the Vietnam War. I do think it was like a very dark time to live through. 
God, just a, I guess, Mad Men reference number two of a, of a million for this episode. But like something they capture well is that like people will just kind of vaguely refer to all the things going on. Yeah. You know, which is something that feels very like applicable to today where people will just like reference. So, you know how crazy things are. And that's not something you could really do in the early 1960s. Like people would be like, what the heck are you talking about? Like, yeah. I live an ordered life. I like I have a job, a car, a home. <laughs> like, yeah, everything is going pretty all right. <laughs> like, yeah, there's ups and downs. but There's not like a general malaise to refer to. Um, yeah. And I've seen that word malaise like used to like talk about the 70s. And like, I think specifically in like in the urban decay kind of aspect, urban decay, yeah. malaise. Yeah. I've heard it described by a handful of like Gen X people and boomers too, I suppose, that that the decade was like when people stopped being optimistic. Because mm-hmm. I've heard people describe like, oh, young people are so optimistic now, which is hard to think about because I think people are very pessimistic. Mm-hmm. But I don't know if they're just like not in touch with youth or it actually is the case mm-hmm. that things are worse now than they were then they talk about like at the start of um, industrialization and modernization like before that there wasn't any reason to believe that the future was going to be any measurably different than the past it was just kind of always was you know people in the 1500s thought the 1600s like why would that be any different it's just kind of life Um, but once you know industrialization started people this is the birth of sci-fi and speculative fiction people started to look forward in a broadly optimistic way i mean dystopian writing was shortly behind um, but I would say utopian stuff was first. And then, yeah, the 70s is that like, I, I'm sure the depression was also a check to people's optimism as well yeah. of like, oh, it looks like things aren't going to be up, up, up all the time. Yeah. I feel like me as someone who was raised um, during the Great Recession, who um, we lost our family's home, but not for the same reasons as other people. And I do think that like I have very responsible like financial habits like when i get money i don't spend even mm-hmm. half of what i get actually mm-hmm. i just like save it and mm-hmm. yeah it's hard for me to think though about people being driven to be consumers where they're buying things every day or like they go on amazon they wear a shirt for a few times and throw it away mm-hmm. i would never do that like <laughs> i um i just think i'm more yeah i know the consequences of like bad decisions and i feel like mm-hmm. There will be a time in my life and kind of in everyone's life where they're going to regret spending every dollar they make. Yeah. Uh-huh. <laughs> As things get hard, like out of the blue. So. Yeah. No, it's, um, I think something we'll end up talking a lot about on this is the kind of third, 30s, 70s, like 2008 kind of cycles. People bring these up. People try yeah. and like, people want to believe in like a perfect decade cycle that it is like a 40 years yeah. deal. I don't, I don't think things are that clean. But yeah, I think that. You see a little bit in like people grew up in the Great Recession, like of that cautiousness with money. Um, I think I really had that before COVID. I kind of like I had yeah. like I was very, very on it, um, helped by having a very low rent at that time, too. But I think like I definitely started revenge spending once COVID kicked off. It was I had this idea of like, what am I saving all this for? <laughs> like, yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I think despite my grandpa not growing up in the great depression, he was born in 39. Like he still somehow has all those quick like uh, traits of kind of miserliness. He always spends lots on us, but like other people, he got an argument with like a, a neighbor who he's had for like 20 years over him being cheap. And they're like not talking anymore. And that's just like yeah. kind of crazy. Um, but he sticks to his guns. I don't know. He's got that depression outlook. Yeah. And I do think too, that it's a good idea to be financially disciplined with yourself, but then generous 
with others. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Leads to a better life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I would never call him like, he's cheap, but he's not stingy. I yeah. would say. I may be splitting hairs there. And yeah, I do think though, now I can distinguish the 70s from 80s more after this week's episode, because it's clear that the 80s were a time of financial recovery. People were more optimistic again, and it's also reflected in the colors that people wore. And this is partly, you know, the transition between the color brown being dominant to people wearing neon colors in the 80s, because there's this effect that happens where when the nation is going through an economically difficult time. People stop taking risks on clothing that's more brightly colored. It's a decision the company makes to only make colors that there are certain people will buy. But then also I found a quote too, which basically said that the colors might be a result of people feeling more sad and actually deciding on an individual level to not buy the more brightly colored clothing. And it said that too on the mid 2000s that colors that we generally think of as being sad, like black, gray, navy, and white, very reserved. Those like were very popular during the Great Recession. Um, but yeah, I never realized that before. Yeah, I mean, I think people have drawn parallels between the like millennial gray or grayish, as people will say as well. Yeah. Like it just came out of this like risk averse. I always call it like, you know, like landlord gray or like development yeah. developer gray kind of thing of like there's nothing inoffensive about it. Like, yeah, if you have really like warmer toned things, it'll play off of it nicely sometimes. But yeah, it just like it becomes this very safe bet. I, I like the kind of exceptions to this rule of like a dampening of color. I own a lot of Fiesta wear pieces, which are these like made in the U.S., everyday kind of pottery stuff like just plates and yeah. stuff some people like collect originals of it because they've been making this stuff since like the 20s and 30s um, but it comes yeah. in a variety of colors and the idea like or part of the mythos of it is that like oh in the great depression the company really wanted to give people something colorful yeah. in their lives and so they started making this fiesta where <laughs> the colors are honestly very impressive i think that they're ceramic right not mm-hmm. powder coated yeah they're ceramic yeah. okay yeah, yeah. I've done ceramic work as part of art school and it's hard to get colors like that, like that vibrant. They must have been doing something different to achieve that. Yeah. And then every year they like uh, take a color out and they put a color in Mm -hmm. as well. So people like that. Is it, you know, a false scarcity kind of thing or an enforced scarcity that makes people collect them? I'm not much of a collector when it comes to physical things. So like I would only buy another thing if something else breaks. Yeah, you're another break your fiesta wear. I actually haven't broken a single piece yet. <laughs> and I have, I've come yeah. pretty close. Um, but another like kind of story out of the depression as well was um, like flower bags. People would like cut up flower bags to be dresses for their girls, and so companies heard about this, and so they'd put like cute designs on them. Yeah. And I, I love those stories of like, oh, in tough times we all come together. I felt like we were reaching for those stories in COVID as well like trying to get back to these kind of depression era, like we're not going to let this split us apart. In fact, we're actually going to be brought closer together by these difficult times, which like, yeah, no, did not happen besides like cute and brief bits in the beginning. Yeah. I do also want to bring up my favorite thing from the seventies is the color brown. Uh, I think that as we move out of millennial gray or grage, we are going to see brown become more and more popular. I've, I talked to someone recently like a few months ago where they were kind of rude to me and they said that <laughs> brown is already in, but I'm not seeing it. They're not right. It's, it's picking up, but it's not there yet. 
I remember seeing as early as like, you know, Rick Owens, like the classic, like uh, runway fashion designer, always designed in like black and gray and white. Um, and then he did some show in the mid 2010s where it was just that, but now it was all like brown. It was like big change, big change coming. Um, so yeah, yeah there's always going to be a turning to it. Like that person shouldn't have said that like that though. Like, yeah, I guess that's all about tone. <laughs> yeah. And um, I found a quote that describes why colors got more dark around the seventies. It's from an article called how color choices echo the economic climate and why it matters. And they said, take the hard to forget disco era of the 1970s. While lifestyles were adventurous and the decade was a defining era for design, color choices were interestingly muted. The playful approach to design went hand in hand with the idealism, radicalism, and all around social change that was taking place. And it should be noted that the difficult economy impacted the style, the style's color palette. According to Bethany Seawright in her online article, Design Flashback, The Colors of the 70s, the colors of the 70s were particularly drab in comparison to those of the psychedelic 60s. The country was recovering from the turmoil of the Vietnam War, and the desire for peace and calm was reflected in the dark wood and earth tones of the period. Yeah, a desire for peace and calm. And like, also, I think it was part of the kind of the era of modernism that tried to look towards nature a little bit more. Um, but albeit yeah. in a very like synthetic and modern way. Um, I mean, yeah. I just think of like fake wood paneling, you know, because um, there were real like woody cars yeah. back in the Great Depression, actually, because it was more cheap to make um, than metal panels for cars. Um, and so people look back on those kind of like nostalgically. But in the 70s, like when Woody's came back, like the Jeep Grand Wagoneer and stuff, like it was just like a, you know, a vinyl panel yeah. basically stuck to the side. Yeah, my grandfather had one of those cars where the exterior was wood or looked like wood. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, people wanted to like bring that stuff inside their home. I just we had a TV with wood sides on it. Uh, it was a Zenith, which was the like one of the last manufacturers of TVs in America. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> my <laughs> family loved it so much. It was like so small. It was like a like an old school TV sized thing, and my parents were always so weirdly proud of it. Like everyone who comes over always says, "Great picture." so crisp so clear yeah. and it was like 20 it was like 20 inches across yeah there's actually like a king of the hill episode where hank brings up that he has like a tv that's the last made in america yeah yeah, no, yeah. that's a good one. Oh my god my family is so similar to that show sometimes yeah were you bobby <laughs> i think yeah besides being skinny as a child i think i was bobby like in some ways it would make my dad shake his head a bit um <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> God, now I'm thinking a little too deep about that. I didn't have the kind of like showmanship thing that Bobby does in it. Yeah. You know? But yeah, I was a little weirdo as a child. Yeah. But yeah, I also want to talk about two other 70s colors, uh, avocado green and harvest gold. Do you have takes mm -hmm. on these? Um, my grandma said that when they got their appliances in the 70s, they had the choice of avocado green and they really thought about it. But instead they went for... Not harvest gold, but like they went brown. They went for like a sunburnt brown kind yeah. of deal. Um, and I think that's survived a little better than the avocado green. Yeah. Uh, I do want to mention now, we should have mentioned this in the beginning, but I don't know if you added to it, but I did start um, a 70s Pinterest board. I'll put that yeah, in the I show added notes. some stuff to it. Yeah. Okay. Uh -huh. I didn't check more. So, but yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. You said the, the TikTok. <laughs> no, you said the Pinterest board 
was a little bit gay. I hope you um, straight ended up. <laughs> I like to think so. Yeah. I mean, yeah. Added some like women's athleisure and stuff. Um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah, because this was like, I don't know, the materials of the time really changed things. Um, synthetics were already a thing since like the 50s and 60s. But yeah, <laughs> I think they really yeah. like the colors and the textures is what really like formed a demarcation between like. Yeah existing things um on synthetics i actually want to bring up something i asked my uncle i asked him can you tell me what you used to do at discos and why you like them because he did go to you um discos he's described them as discotheques in the past uh but this is what he said uh he said the disco days had great clubs to hang out with friends check out the ladies drink and dance with the hot ladies wearing those tight polyester outfits the disco music was unique for all the clubs between 1976 to 81. Yep. <laughs> That's so yeah. good. Yeah. I like that for this episode, we were able to like lean on, you know, other people in our lives. Cause it's like, it's just, it's not, it's within like, it's very within living memory, but it's just outside of living memory for us. Yeah. Basically. Um, and for like, you have older siblings, even for them, this is like all of them are too young to remember the seventies. Yeah. I think one of, my oldest sister is born in like the eighties, I believe. But I do think that youth are not told what happened in the recent past. Really mm -hmm. people older than assume that like, they kind of already know. I feel mm -hmm. like even in schools, like I was not really ever taught about the fall of the Berlin wall. Like, mm. and I'm sure that all my teachers lived through it, but they were, mm -hmm. it was just like, they're drawing a blank. It just seemed too everyday to them. Yeah. I remember like, it's always weird. I would get bored in history class and I would just like read the history book ahead. Yeah. Like, and it's fun to skip ahead in history, like see what happens next. Yeah. But you know, that end of history always like moved as I got older and older. And, um, I don't know, just like reading about the nineties and the two thousands is always so strange. They, always, they, they all the talk was like the Berlin wall and then like it ends right there. Yeah. I remember like one of my history books had this thing in the end of like, about Russia and it's like the cold war has ended and U S and Russians have lots in common. They enjoy basketball for instance. And it just has like photos of people playing basketball in like a nineties Soviet apartment block. And I'm like, yeah. Oh wow. <laughs> I, you texted your uncle. I called my mom about the seventies and I don't know. It was like really fun to see her reminisce. She was born in 61. So she has very clear memories of the seventies. albeit like in childhood she said fashion wise for her this is very skewed in being like high school kids and younger basically baseball tees with raglan sleeves were like the biggest thing you know like you'd have color sleeves and then just a white center overalls were huge um you you could wear jeans on friday was one thing you, you could not wear jeans other days of the week at school you had the to school like enforce slacks. that or are they enforce the school it? enforce that this wasn't like a yeah. mean girls like you know <laughs> kind of like yeah. self-imposed fashion thing yeah. Um, I mean, when I was skip, skimming through the Paul Fussell uniforms book, I learned that like jeans were like a hyper sexual thing to wear, which every, <laughs> now in a day they like kind of seem every day. Yeah. But like, I mean, particularly for guys, the tight fittingness mm -hmm. was hot. I, I don't see it. It's like they don't mean anything if someone wears them now yeah. but they were like maybe that's why they weren't letting people wear it other days of the week yeah they were afraid of jeans yeah that seems so like far in the past or like yeah um, they talk about this on nymphed alumni of just like the social panic around uh yoga pants yeah they came about like you can see anything and they went so quickly from like that 
to them being shamed for being lazy. Like at first they yeah. were being seen as like, oh, you're doing too much. You're showing off too much. And then it reversed to like, oh, come on, like show care a little bit. Put on some jeans. <laughs> yeah. Um, on yoga pants one time um, during a Christmas with my family, one of my sisters um, was a little bit mean to me. And then I said something to her where I was like, why are you wearing yoga pants? There are children here. And everyone's jaw dropped. They thought it was like really rude. But no, I, I was like, why are you wearing yoga pants on Christmas? Like dress up. <laughs> I, I feel like I have very similar stories to you there where it's just like family gathering and then saying something like, I don't know, out of pocket. And rude. I yeah, I remember having something like that with oh man, I'm kicking myself if my sister ever actually listens to this. Um, but we were having like a family gathering and they had a vinyl record player at like my family's house and I was looking through all the records and I found one and I like picked one up it's like anyone want to listen to old blue eyes and it was like Frank Sinatra my sister made fun of me like old blue eyes but you think you're so mature and I said something like oh when you're mature you can't go a month without dyeing your hair and then she cried and I had to apologize and I like ground the whole thing to a halt and yeah. I was just like just I was so mad that she had called me out like that yeah how old was she when she said that I think I was like 14 and she was 15 Okay. So it was just like everything is raw, <laughs> like everything hurts, everything. Yeah. I don't know, just like prime adolescence. Yeah. Do you, yeah. you want to hear a funny anecdotal story I was once told by someone about like the most shocking thing I've ever heard someone say to family at a family <laughs> gathering? Um, so I know this gay guy who lives in New York City and he was describing to me how in his family there's rumors that his grandmother is like a lesbian and has been dating another woman on the side for a long time. And one time when he was like a gay 12 year old, he asked his grandmother, oh, do you ever kiss your friend on the lips? <laughs> and then they were a little bit irritated. But then he said, do you ever kiss your friend on the lips down there? Oh, my God. <laughs> I would be shot if I said anything like that at a family <laughs> gathering. I would be. <laughs> yeah. No, it, they were pissed at him, but he was young enough to like get away with it a little bit. But yeah. yeah. Oh man. <laughs> yeah. Um, that's really funny. Um, other stuff I had, I had written down from talking to my mom. Um, my mom grew up in like, you know, outer suburban Illinois, um, like not an inner, you know, second, third ring kind of um, suburb. Um, it was originally a town found in the 18 somethings and just got absorbed into the Chicago kind of you know, economic area and I think other things she said. I When I asked her, like, oh, how about all the like very fractious, like social movements at the time and all these like things happening, like Vietnam and the gas crisis and all that. She was like, I was like, what did your parents like think or say about this? And she like had a, like a light existential crisis, like not a bad one, but she really thought about it. And then she like called me back later and she was like, my family didn't talk about any of this stuff. Like I do remember the gas crisis because it like, literally we like couldn't get gas certain days and we had to wait in line and it was really hot outside too. And then she started calling up all of her other friends of similar age to like ask them about this. Yeah. And then like she grew up Irish Catholic. Um, and so she called her like best friend from her twenties uh, and thirties who grew up in a very like erudite academic Jewish family. And her friend was like, we talked about this stuff all the time. This is all we talked about at the dinner table was just like all the political things going on and controversies. We get in arguments and all that. My mom just like couldn't go with the fact that like, that's just not how her family grew up, basically. Yeah. One good thing that did come out of the energy crisis was that a lot of the subways that were built in the 70s and 80s were built using funds that seemed to 
have been set aside for new subways to be built was because of the energy crisis. Think mm. People were scared that like, we want to have gas again and they might need to take trains. So yeah, these were built under the Lyndon B. Johnson administration and they're they're called like Great Society subway mm-hmm. systems. And this actually isn't really that well documented online. A lot of urbanists will ask themselves like, why was there an uptick in um, subway construction that there were no subways built between the 1930s and 1970s slash 80s? And it was because of Lyndon B. Johnson. Yeah. yeah. What else did your mom say to you? <laughs> um, other stuff that stood out for her is very like... Um I don't know. A lot of it is very similar to the rest of the country. I think she had a pretty like typical growing up. Other things that stood out when I asked about the gas crisis, she said that it affected um, her dad because he owned a lot of cars. Uh, he had two like foreign convertibles. Actually, he had he liked British like convertibles, so he had an MG and a Triumph. To any car appreciators listening out there, those are like like imagine a late sixties MG and Triumph. They're really cool. They look like yeah. they're also cartoonishly small on roads. So that actually must have been like. Yeah, there was this turn towards economy, like, yes, people were focusing on trains again, but also with cars, like, this is what finally caused, like, a slimming down of American cars, because they did, like, reach a zenith, like, the longest car, longest production car in America was, like, built in the early 70s, right before um, the gas crisis, and then things really, like, like, all the Japanese cars became very, like, important because they had better economy and they were smaller, and American car companies tried to, like, mimic them by making these like really bad cars like the gremlin which i always thought was a funny name for a car um and that's to be a little macabre that's the car that my grandpa died in actually not any of the cool european ones but rather in an amc gremlin uh, yeah that's too bad mm-hmm. but you don't mean the amc theaters no 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 no. american yeah. motor company american yeah not motor watching cars. the gremlins in no, the theater. no no yeah. that very 80s movie there yeah yeah um but yeah um I do want to circle back to avocado green and harvest gold a little bit. So my takes on the both of those are that avocado green is a really beautiful color that I think would best be accentuated by the color black. But it, a lot of pictures have it where it's juxtaposed with wood or like mm-hmm. a brown or beige color. And then harvest gold, it kind of makes me think of the yellow wallpaper poem where it's nice in a low dose but then if you look, look at it for too long i feel like it is kind of gross like it yeah. reminds like a lot of poets actually yellow will oftentimes symbolize sickness in poems like there's something about yeah. i think being surrounded by that color that might get unpleasant after a while i think you know you could say that harvest gold had a second life as art ho yellow actually yeah but, like the fjall raven konkin mini backpack and harvest gold was like the thing of the you know mid 2010s was it was the color called harvest gold or does it just look similar i only heard it called art ho yellow actually but that's probably from being online too much yeah. it wasn't something that came up a lot in like day-to-day conversation yeah um marigold marigold maybe question mark yeah and then broader like 1970s fashion you listed out a lot of like 1970s items from top to bottom uh the newsboy cap Oh man, that's yeah. a rough one. I think I think that's you don't like this. I'm anti newsboy cap. I think that they have a deservedly bad rap nowadays as like a guy trying to figure out how to hide that he's you know experiencing male pattern baldness. Um, yeah, but yeah. It's I don't know. I I go back and forth on like whether hats should make a return. I don't really think it's like possible. But the flat cap is like a useful kind of minimum hat. Yeah, because this was around 
when people stopped wearing hats, you know, mm-hmm. post um, Jackie Kennedy, Americans stopped wearing them really because they couldn't fit in cars comfortably. Mm-hmm. But yeah, this you could go into a car with the hat on and I have to take it off. I, what I do think is interesting is that the newest boy cap has been sort of like an international symbol of poverty since its inception. Like Vladimir Lenin would wear it like in order to associate himself with the proletariat. And the early history, though, was like, why did it become associated with uh, the working class was apparently in in England in like the 1500s people, the government was trying to make to increase the consumption of wool. And so they passed a law where everyone had to, everyone on Sundays had to wear uh, like a simple hat. And I think these were affordable. They're mm-hmm. like a very cheap way to make a wool hat. And so that's why they popped on amongst mm-hmm. poor people. Yeah, that's sort of like, I think I said that, I said that earlier, but like minimum hat. Like this is truly like the minimum thing that qualifies as a hat. Nowadays, minimum hat is like a baseball cap, you know, or a beanie or something. Yeah. Um, or a kippa. Yeah, that's truly the most minimal yeah. hat there. Yeah, a yeah. very tiny, small kippa. But yeah, I I don't know. I wish I could wear a hat because like when I'm wearing a suit and an overcoat and it's bad weather outside and I just have my like hat, my hair exposed to the elements. I'm like, it feels like I need to have something here. But yeah, I think I've said that exact phrase on this podcast. But I will not give in and wear like a fedora or a trilby. Please shoot me if that does happen. Like put me yeah. down. Yeah, I never wear hats because I don't want to. I want. I don't want anyone to think I'm bald for even a moment. I <laughs> need to show people that I have hair. Yeah. Um, no. <laughs> yeah. um, Got to show it. But yeah, sort of the opposite of the international symbol of poverty that are newsboy caps are satin shirts. So satin was a luxury product that was first produced in China like a thousand years ago, and it's not durable. It has a. It was valued for its smooth and luxurious texture. It is not durable because it wasn't practical to wear. If it got snagged, it would like rip very easily. Um, but it was popular in the 70s because it uh, fit very loosely. It was easier to dance in in a disco. But yeah, what's interesting is, is if you think about someone wearing a newsboy cap on their head and then a shattered shirt below, it's a collapse of like centuries. <laughs> the two are so contradicting. Yeah. I think that's like, yeah, this is the beginning of that kind of like the lack of context and the resampling of things that started yeah. in the 70s like continues to now. Yeah, and there, there were no concepts of cultural appropriation yet. Yeah. But no, I don't think if, say, like either of these garments had never been popularized by the 70s, they would be like off limits. I feel like they're, <laughs> they're not that controversial. Yeah. Um, yeah. In the 70s, like they were very like forward thinking, but also like backwards looking. I mean, yeah, the news... The news boy cap was like, yeah, reaching back to something in the past and satin has been used extensively before. A good look at like how the 70s looks backwards is the um, the Great Gatsby movie from the 70s with Robert Redford. And they had uh, the costume design by like a younger Ralph Lauren before he really hit his like true power in the 80s yeah. and 90s. But it, that movie really says more about the 70s than about like any kind of historiosity with them. <laughs> the 30s. Yeah. Yeah, they have very like big ties and that would have never been yes ties were wider in the 30s but you'd have like a tiny tight little knot basically and you'd have like um you'd have collar bars sometimes to keep stuff in place or uh, like a tie pin like all these different things that are just not like remembered <laughs> in yeah. that movie yeah i mean imagine someone showing up to the club with a tie no why you don't need yeah. to do that no i <laughs> like i went to my rugby um 
rugby banquet and it was like you know dressed to the nines was what we were told to do so i was wearing like a suit and tie and then i went to meet up with people like spilt milk in logan square after and i just felt so fucking weird and out of place and i went to cole's bar afterwards where like people are just like playing pool and stuff and i'm still in a tie i don't know i just tried to ignore it (laughs) like yeah tried to deflect it when people were bringing it up but yeah yeah um (laughs) Yeah, and then you mentioned uh, you put down the satin shirts thing. There's a subreddit uh, dedicated to men wearing satin shirts. Yeah. But it's clearly just like a fetish thing. Yeah, um, it's all pictures of guys. Yeah. And the way they're, or the way that every piece of the garment is satin and they're putting ties on to just have it been more satin, it is definitely like a fetish thing. And it only has like, it has like less than 100 uh, subscribers. It's like very niche. I've never heard of a satin finish before but like you can tell from the how they take the images that it is oh jeez this is just so wild like literally you give, oh. you give people anything and it's got to be men looking at it yeah. like i don't think women are fetishizing men in this way they don't like fetishize too much of what men wear really yeah um actually th- this is a funny way to segue into uh, did i ever tell you that i went to um a mr international rubber but it's because i worked for the mca and i hosted yeah. there one time mm-hmm. But yeah, I was, I learned through doing that, that like, um, people who are into fetishes are just like nerds. I mean, maybe it's just particularly (laughs) gay ones, but yeah, yeah, it's like a lot of them, you could tell that they had interest in superheroes or something and like, yeah, they just all seem shy. Like, Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah. It's people seeking out like costumes. They're not really comfortable like who they are without it. I mean, that's why cosplay has always creeped me out. Basically, it's just like people running from something and afraid to like, yeah, wear that. And when I was a part of this like menswear online forum thing, I they would talk about like the intersection with cosplay and all that. And to me, that's like a hard line you just don't do. Like historical dressing, cosplay, any of that stuff is not from the same tradition of like wanting to dress well and caring about clothes. It's from like a I'm a child trying to hide <laughs> yeah. kind of thing. Um, so sorry if that's a, a mean take. But yeah, <laughs> I was told about uh, International Mr. Rubber by like guys on the rugby team and the bit I would always do about it is like, God, I hope the U.S. brings home the gold this year. <laughs> like, I know, yeah. like, I know that's not like really the competition isn't the point, but it's just funny that everyone wins. Uh, that like someone has to win every year, you know. Yeah. And like, what if like some obscure country takes it over America? Like, we can't win anything anymore, you know. We're not doing no, the way we, we used to. <laughs> I mean, we have like at the Olympics, you know, yeah. we still get like the highest medal cuts, I think, mm-hmm. but not by the margin it used to be. We have to really grind like the nose of the world into it. You know? <laughs> Yeah. But yeah. Um, next up is bell bottom pants. Yeah. Bell bottom pants have navel origins, but I looked it up like, okay, why does Hillers wear bell bottoms? And there is the use case of it being like, you want to rip your pants off if you fall in the water. And it can also be turned into a flotation device. But also, um, when they were initially adopted by sailors in the early 1800s, they were popular because you could roll your pants up above the knee very easily for when you were on a, like the deck of a ship. Mm-hmm. So if there's water getting on the deck, like you would protect it and it wouldn't, um, mm-hmm. it would still like hold up over a longer period of time. Yeah. No, I mean, I think pants are destined to like, you know, shrink in and grow out over time. Yeah. But I don't know. Yeah. Bell bottoms are back currently. I just like, I don't know. Adults like, Boomers love talking about this, like whenever bell bottoms are back in style, like vaguely as they did in, you know, in the 2000s. And then now 
Uh, it was just like, can't believe those are coming back of all things. And it's like, come on, it's not the most insane thing. It's just like a slight variation in cut. Like, it's, yeah. people are bound to get bored of anything. Yeah, I do think they look really good on women. Uh, I don't find them attractive with men. Although in the Pinterest board, I did put pictures of men in bell bottoms just because they are the like truest expression of the aesthetic of the time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, yeah, I don't really like them. <laughs> Do you want to do tube socks? Yeah. uh, Tube socks come out of like, you know, a sportiness in the 70s. There was like a rise of a fitness culture in the 70s. I like I noticed that. I mean, my grandparents generation, the silent generation, like they're kind of the last generation to like not really have a physical culture (laughs) in a bit where like they had this weird idea towards like exertion that was just like, why would you do that? Like, you know, life is hard. Life is exertion. Like you should just like relax and watch TV. I think it's because they kind of like came of age in the you know 50s and 60s when those things were a thing. This was before like <laughs> the, the kind of in, like while running sports have always been around like the 70s and 80s were the birth of jogging, you know, as a yeah. source of recreation. Also, um, like during the gas crisis, people turned to trains and public transit. They also turned to bikes and there was a bike boom in the 70s. It like didn't result in too much permanent infrastructure. Yeah. Didn't like go like super Dutch or anything afterwards. And actually one of the sad things that grew out of it was the vehicular th- cycling mentality, which is that like there shouldn't be bike lanes or anything, but just the, a competent cyclist should be able to like almost keep up with traffic and assert themselves. Yeah. Um, which is like widely hated nowadays as being just like bro cycling basically for like physically fit men. And it excludes like anyone else from really like joining cycling. Um, yeah. But yeah. And so the tube socks came out of this like kind of sportiness yeah, it's, I don't know, people like needed long socks for a bit. People are afraid of men's calves. Yeah. Yeah, the leg hair, maybe they just didn't like that. I don't know. Um, it's funny, like the first instances of so- of like sh- men wearing shorts that you can see in like the early, like 1920s and 30s, the absolute earliest, um, men would still wear like over the calf socks. And that is such a rough look, I think. Outside of rugby, of course, over yeah. the calf socks. And um, yeah. short shorts do work in that occasion. Yeah. But, yeah. I mean, something about that is still, it feels like renaissance, you know? Like <laughs> yeah, br- it's more breeches. closer to tights and breeches and all that than like, yeah, yeah pants. So I think that pants are like a semi-recent invention as opposed to breeches and stuff. Um, but yeah. yeah, I wear tube socks to the gym. I think they're fun. I buy the, the Los Angeles apparel ones. They look good. Yeah, I've never really liked having them above my ankle though. Yeah, I keep my, my socks pretty short. I never got that about people in the Midwest. Like, it's cold as shit out here. Like, don't you want to cover your ankles? But, like, my friends, like, deep in the winter will just be wearing, like, low-cut socks and vans. I'm like, boots exist. Wool socks exist. Yeah, maybe I'm just used to it. Yeah, I'm not tougher sure. than me. I, I actually would always notice it was, like, my suburban and, like, car-dependent friends because you're not really outside for that long. But you're out here hoofing it in, like, <laughs> in ankle socks. Respect. Yeah, I mean, even when there's, like, five inches of snow or whatever, I don't really put on thicker socks. Man. No, it like if yeah. if a piece of snow touches my ankle, I want to kill myself. <laughs> it's so bad. Yeah. Boots exist for a reason. Yeah, speaking of boots, uh platform shoes. So I think that these become more popular because the number of no car households dropped from seventeen percent to like thirteen percent. And so I think that a lot of people to wear shoes that were less practical and more difficult to walk in. Mm. Um, 
And then one thing that they do do, though, is that they add additional height to the person's silhouette. And that helps them stand out in a crowd or in a disco. And one thing that's nice about them, too, is like looking at pictures online, you can tell that they're more skillfully made with than shoes that are made today. Like the detail is really cool. But yeah, I think it's a pretty innovative form. Yeah. You ever seen the um, the platform shoes where they have like an aquarium in them? In the base of it, and people keep like a fish yeah, in there. Yeah, that's something you think about as a child a lot, like that yeah. and quicksand, yeah, <laughs> yeah, and Pogo Six. Mm-hmm. And like, um, I always thought about like an actual car pool. I'd always think about that, like, what if a car actually had a pool in it? I don't know why that had such a call to me as a child. Yeah, um, but yeah, and that's like, that could be our segue into disco or, or water beds. Water beds. Yeah. yeah, me as a child, I would have loved a waterbed. Yeah, I I had friends who like had one, and I saw it as like the coolest thing. I always mentioned it to my parents, and they're like, eh, they would always kind of make a face about it. And that's like a '70s thing was that there was this rise of like what I'm going to describe as like waterbed swinger aesthetics, <laughs> kind of of just these the hot tub emerged of this period period too, and like leisure suits were also associated. There was like a lecherousness in 70s i think this yeah. could be the rise of divorce where you have like the yeah. single middle-aged man is like a existing for the first time like a young like a a man of means without a wife attached to him the bachelor pad really comes of age in the yeah. 70s pied i mean there like would have been like in previous centuries there would have been plenty of single people from people's spouses dying yeah yeah they wouldn't have gotten a bachelor pad with a hot tub you know they couldn't have done that even if they wanted yeah. to in the 30s <laughs> But yeah, and then, yeah, on disco more broadly, which is like, you know, just like part and parcel with the 1970s, my main source of information on disco is my friend Bob, who is the um, the chef for my fraternity that I was in. Uh, he worked there for 40 years and he still lives in the house. And he lived in Uptown in the 70s in Chicago and he would go dancing all the time. He really spoke fondly of it. He said it was the best era in the world he always then follows that up by saying that ronald reagan killed disco and the moral majority which i think is a pretty widely shared opinion that like that the cultural forces that like you know ushered in reagan ushered in the end of disco as well he uses as like his kind of like time marker the release of saturday night fever um as being like you know before and after point where there was just so many more people on the dance floor after there were so many more discos. There was much more just demand for it, but he doesn't talk about the scene being ruined in any way. Um, he thinks it was just, it was great. He said he had the craziest outfits. He had like a belt with batteries on it. So it had lights that lit up the rest of his shirt basically. And he said that people would clear the dance floor for him whenever he was out there. So yeah, he was really, he was really living it out there. Yeah. Um, Reminded me of like people think about this with like the drugs and stuff of the period, which was, yeah, super a part of it. I mean, this is the rise of like heroin in America and the beginnings of club drugs. But some people would just like dance sundown to sun up, like no drugs, just like with the music and everything, which I don't yeah. know. That's respectable. Yeah. I mean, in Uptown to go out dancing, I feel like you'd probably go to the Aragon Ballroom. I think so by that period. I forget like. That it started places. as a dance hall. That's why it's called the the ballroom, Aragon mm-hmm. Ballroom. Yeah, I forget when it transitioned into being like a more of a music venue, but yeah. yeah. Um, but yeah, I don't have that much to say about disco. I know my uncle went to discotheques, but yeah, I had meant to see um, the oh no, the last days of disco, which is this like film about disco towards the late eighties or nineties or something like that. Mm-hmm. I don't know. It's, it seemed like a cool 
it's a cool plot. Yeah. So I've been meaning mm-hmm. to watch that for a while. Yeah, people always bemoan the like um the when disco went mainstream it lost its like gay and black like visibility and influences yeah. and all that. But it also like it did bring people together. Like you had <laughs> you had like white suburbanites like driving downtown to go to discos. Yeah. <laughs> it was I don't know, I think it was it was a bit of a monoculture. Um, it's just something that we always kind of like reach out to nowadays. Like, oh, there's no monoculture anymore. Yeah. But yeah, I'm a, I'm a disco optimist. In Chicago, we're famous for the Disco Demolition Night, which was hosted by like a more conventional classic rock DJ from a radio station who like, you know, in the late 70s, like invited people out to come to Comiskey Park, you know, where the White Sox play. They used to play. Uh, they have a different stadium now. And he invited people to like destroy all their disco records and just like got completely out of hand and just became yeah. completely ungovernable. Yeah. Cause disco was more of like a preppy uh, musical genre. And I think that a lot of the attendees of that disco demolition, they were more working class, which w- rock was more popular amongst working class people. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, but no, I remember learning about that for the first time when I saw a display at the Seltzer regional library, mm-hmm. but yeah, it was one of those moments where it was like, Wow, how many things do I not know about this place? <laughs> yeah, no. Yeah, I think disco was seen like as either I described like white suburbanites coming down to go to disco tech. So it was either like you're a poor gay black kid at the disco, or you were like towards the end of disco, like a sweet older couple looking to like have a night on the town dancing. But who's missing in that is like, you know, I think at Disco Dem- Demolition Night, like rough white ethnics <laughs> from Bridgeport and like the Southwest yeah. side. Yeah. Because a lot of them, I think, were still working in industrial jobs. Yeah. Which you can I you can envision the type of like working class white boy at the time that would like <laughs> wanna go blow up blow up disco music. Yeah, uh-huh. It was just yeah. seen as like flashy and ostentatious. Like we were talking about the um Hunger Games and like the Capitol and the people who dress ridiculously there. Like they're yeah. Like they definitely owe some bits of that to like disco style. It just seems like a little egregious if you are like, you know, suffering at that point, seeing people dress like that. Um, and then so the political undercurrents of the 1970s, civil rights movement, um, and then, you know, the war in Vietnam dragging on and on. I think that we can definitely feel a lot of that. You know, this is where like the idea that like, oh, America is just going to be perpetually in a state of low grade war. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I mean, I do think that the last few years there have been a lot of parallels between the 70s and um, the start of the 2020s where you know, we feel like we're having these perpetual wars that aren't popular with the public. We experienced an inflation crisis. We also experienced a gas crisis. And it feels like Joe Biden is going to go the go down the route of Jimmy Carter, like very easily. He won't be reelected because his approval rating is so low. Yeah, it was just one of those like, yeah, after Watergate, America was like, oh, anyone but him. And so a Democrat I like drafted into office, um, but it was in such like a difficult time and he was kind of like a feckless leader in some ways, even though I really admire Jimmy Carter. Um, he just wasn't the man for the time, basically. Or he was exactly the man for the time is another way to look at it. I mean, what people don't realize, though, is he was relatively similar to Ronald Reagan because, for example, Jimmy Carter was planning to lay off all the flight traffic controllers, mm-hmm. which were in a contentious battle with the U.S. government. He just, like... Reagan is famous for doing that pretty on after he was elected president, but Carter had the exact same plan. It was going to go the, he was going to do the same thing. And there's a lot of other examples too, where 
Reagan and Carter were very similar. Yeah, people like want to see them as like different sides of a coin. Yeah, they they were both like increasingly neoliberal. <laughs> there is not like a big yeah, ideological uh-huh. difference. I think I would say there were larger e- ideological differences, but less maybe policy differences. I don't know. I'm gonna. St- I remain skeptical of that. I I think Reaganomics was like pretty different from what um, Carter was envisioning for the world. But in all these political movements of the time, I think what does get forgotten is the consumer rights movement and the rise of that. I mean, this is a period of time where corporations are playing more and more of a role in people's lives. And so, like, this is a natural time for that movement to kind of rise. Yeah. And I think that a lot of uh, younger people might ask, okay, what were boomers and Gen Z doing, you know, letting things backslide and letting so many horrible things happen under Reagan? But, or the answer to this question of like, why did things backslide so much is partly because the people of the time became preoccupied with the consumer rights movement. So the general public was, they wanted society to become more neoliberal. They were okay with things becoming more corporate. They just wanted better protection for them as consumers. It was like a way to make the world better, but not the solution. And one of the things that I think is unfortunate is that a lot of these rules, they don't translate well to the internet. Like, for example, if you take out an ad in a newspaper, due to the consumer rights movement, you can't make that ad look like a news article. That's like illegal. Mm-hmm. But if you're CNN.com or FoxNews.com, like you can, you can buy out internet ads that look like a news article. Yeah, and that's perfectly content, legal. Yeah. So yeah, stuff like that yeah. is not ideal. No, um, I think that, yeah, this is part of the transition of people seeing themselves like not as primarily citizens, but as primarily consumers, Yeah, basically. And so like in kind of giving up on higher ideas of citizenship, we'll just settle for like, well, as long as the prices stay low and the product doesn't kill me, like that is progress. Uh, I think about when it comes to like this era, Richard Berman is a really interesting he was a lawyer uh, and he ran a series of like complicated interlocking companies. And basically what they would do is they would run PR for corporations. And he kind of invented astroturfing in mm-hmm. a way of like mimicking kind of like the consumer rights goals of like, oh, we're just consumers and we want options. We want freedom and we want choice. And so he fought against smoking regulations. He fought against raising minimum wage. He fought against uh, drunk driving laws as being too restrictive. He was like the main yeah. enemy of Mothers Against Drunk Driving, which is such a weird thing to be like pro drunk driving. But yeah, he was just in the pocket of like all these like companies and stuff. He was like very, very close to basically like Outback Steakhouse, Wendy's, Chili's, Macaroni Grill and Arby's all like directly paid his companies for this stuff. And that's largely out of the minimum wage thing because all of those companies are heavily reliant on that. But um, his son was David Berman, who is of the band Silver Juice, which is a very like sardonic and cynical indie band. I really like their music. But um, David like came out as the son of Richard Berman, basically, where he had like not really addressed it previously. And he like wanted to quit music and just dedicate himself to undoing his father's legacy. He did get back into music and then he sadly killed himself in 2019. Um, but yeah, it's just like he's just shackled by like, and there's a lot of stuff going on in his life, but definitely having the guilt of like, you know, a father who just like <laughs> seems like just so few people are so abjectly like evil, but that really seems like it. I yeah, know. I can see it. 
Yeah, market fundamentalists are very deleterious for society. Yeah. It's just like it's this fetishization of just choice. Like people should have the choice whether or not to drive home drunk. Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, all right. My last little blurb on the seventies and stuff is uh, a spiel on modernism and the end of modernism. Cause I don't know, that might be our least listened to episode, the interwar modernism one. Yeah, it's pretty it is. dry. I'll try and keep this short, but basically like, I mean, people, both architects and like consumers are getting bored of like rectilinear glass boxes. And so there was a kind of like sense that we have to shake things up a little bit. And so this is the rise of, postmodernism but also just like different modernism i would say where things um would enter more like 45 degree angles or obtuse angles concrete forms more fluid forms as well people are trying to like break out of that box um but also the 1970s was had the bicentennial in america so we were looking back like 200 years and so colonial styles came back in these are seen as very like upmarket. my mom told me that like um, they lived in a colonial house and like a colonial revival house, a recent build. And this was seen as like, oh, interesting that like a, on a teacher's salary, <laughs> they're able to live in that. But they had like known the builder or something. But yeah, those are seen as upscale. And then modernism was seen as a little bit like downscale. Like if you had just a ranch home, that was seen as less than having a colonial. Basically, yeah. Tradition was seen as like um, money. And then like modernism where it used to be seen as a luxury was seen as more of a consumer good. Yeah. I don't even think that's like the zenith of the pendulum swinging backwards. Cause like there is this period of like neoclassical revival in the nineties. Like yeah. the Harold Washington library center is a great yeah. example of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Of like, yeah. Postmodern neoclassical, like really yeah. like looking back towards architecture history. But we had this like very narrow version of that in the seventies. We were just looking at like colonial stuff. Yeah. <laughs> kind of. I can see it. Yeah. I love that building though. Uh, it was sort of like not that popular when I was first built, but it's so mm-hmm. nice. Like I love, I was actually there today for a person of element training because I'm a librarian and yeah, I love it. It like makes me feel like we could actually build better buildings in America still. I, I'm, I don't know. Harold Washington library is a little like gauche when I look at it. The size of the owls on it is insane. The proportion is completely out of control. Like it's like, uh, it's like car- cartoonish, basically. Um, it's yeah. cool to look at from like higher buildings, especially. Um, it's a little crazy. So, yeah, 1950s and 60s was urban renewal. A lot of historic buildings were torn down. In the 1970s, people like really started to notice it. The destruction of Penn Station in 1964 um, in New York City really like shocked people. It's just one of those things you assumed would always kind of just be there forever. But yeah. it got torn down. In Mad Men, they like reference it and they try and like sell a client on a kind of risky ad. And they're like, come on, man, it's the future. Things are changing. People tore down Penn Station. Anything can happen. Um, It's just kind of one of those like we are like endlessly churning forward. We don't know if the future is better, but we know the past is gone. Um, Yeah. I mean, I actually am a proponent of them rebuilding uh, Penn Station in the old style because that's um, proposed pretty frequently Mm -hmm. in New York City. Yeah, they're getting money together. I'm interested in those people. I don't know. Yeah, historical recreation, there's some interesting thoughts either way about it. This is the idea that you should give it space for new architects, but I kind of know where you would land on that, which is that you don't like new architects. Um, yeah. And so we might as well try and capture that old grandeur. I think... No, I, I am. Like I do think that we could enter into a grand architectural period again once people start to 3D print elements for mm-hmm. architecture because the thing with 3D printing is it's actually faster and cheaper to 
3D print something that has more detail. Like the the most inefficient and longest 3D print would be a perfect cube or mm -hmm. like a rectangle. Like because mm -hmm. there's no there's no um, reduction. There's no reduction, and so complexity is free with yeah. 3D printing, which is one of the mm -hmm. best benefits. But we're not at the scale yeah. of being able to do that yet. But I, I'm optimistic that we'll get to that place eventually. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And bring back ornament. Love ornamentation. <laughs> Big ornamentation fan. Yeah. Um, also, people like like to pin a certain date as like the end of modernism. And they'll use um, the demolition of the Pruitt-Igoe public housing project um, in 1972. I was, I was in St. Louis. Basically, St. Louis built a giant public housing thing right as people were fleeing the city due to deindustrialization. Yeah. Um, and it fell into complete disrepair. And there's lots of like little anecdotes about it of how like soul crushing it was to be inside there architecturally and how like poorly designed it was for how people actually lived in there. And I think that those subjects are important. Um, I think that like aesthetics are important into like the places that people live in. But it's also kind of um, extraneous in the case of places like this because it just wasn't maintained like there just wasn't money towards it you could talk about like if the buildings could have been spaced better or if like the windows were different or something or the layout of common areas but, like who gives a shit if like <laughs> there wasn't heating and cooling yeah. like pipes were bursting like wait the whole time there, there was no heating or cooling no no no. it's just like like they had all the funds to build it and then they really skimped on maintaining it oh, which yeah. is a <laughs> very common story in america like we built that place like it was a highway you know we just earmarked tons of money to do the original building of it and we pat ourselves on the back and acted shocked when it required money to upkeep yeah and so i don't know i and now it just feels like public housing is a complete like poison pill um, for a lot of things and we've adapted more towards putting affordable units inside buildings we've realized you can't just you know silo poor people together <laughs> um in public housing you need to like kind of you know have income diversity throughout areas so we definitely learn from it but i don't know it's like we, we learn from our mistakes but like the wrong mistakes like it was yeah. a, it was rigged from the start i don't know um but for a lot of people like the 70s are like suburban memories like this was the era of urban decay we don't think about the city and then so this was when like suburbs were really getting out there and we're reaching these yeah, second third rings of cities are continuing the kind of growth ponzi schemes it's sometimes called um the brady bunch things like that yeah, yeah this is when like sub the suburbs became the standard for people yeah like the number of people now if you add up like the cities in america that are reasonably dense it's only like it's like seven or eleven percent of the population it's very mm -hmm. small yeah, yeah. It's, like over 50% of the country lives in the suburbs. Yeah, it's funny because you always say like, oh, people are more urban than ever before, but it's because we just have like, <laughs> we have a definition of like urban or rural, <laughs> essentially. Um, yeah, very true. Know. Yeah, and this was like, uh, we talked about this in the Cowboy episode, but the rural purge where um, like TV stations started taking more like rural country-oriented programming off and pivoting towards cities. Yeah. So everything was either depicting like urban life or suburban life. Um, and so, you know, rural people were being left behind. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, this might be a good place to wrap up now. So before we end, I do want to mention that we have an Instagram page yes. um, that it, it helps us. Re I mean, we get we can see uh, the data of like how many people listen to us, but mm -hmm. it's hard to say, like, I, it's nice to see more 
random people follow it because that's been happening over the past few weeks like people i don't know Mm -hmm. and yeah that's nice to see yeah so it's fun to have like random people listen to the podcast and then (laughs) have uh random people on the internet call me gay as well (laughs) on one forum online (laughs) someone said that i have the gayer voice Uh, and i'm trying not to let that go to my head but yeah (laughs) yeah no i was the one who entered this podcast with voice dysmorphia yeah (laughs) i don't know we don't need two of us having it yeah yeah um but yeah closing thoughts on the 70s um well it's not my favorite decade i think that like i feel a lot of like pity and compassion for the 70s um yeah i i see it in a new light i think before i just thought it was dark now i see it as humble if that makes sense Mm -hmm. yeah i guess I don't like the cuts, but I like the colors and yeah. It's interesting. Cause like they just came out of this, like this optimism of the sixties that then faded away. And it feels, it feels like we're experiencing the seventies, but we never got our sixties. You know, we never got our like optimistic period. We just went from like, like nine 11 to just like <laughs> COVID yeah. with like Obama in the middle. It's like the only discernible yeah. events. I mean, yeah. I think 2011 to 2019 were pretty good. Yeah. Yeah. You're right. I shouldn't be such a doomer about that. Yeah. Although we will, I mean, this is, this is me expressing my love of Peter Zihan's book. The end of the world is just the beginning, but like globalization is going to, it's going to regress more and more as the population of the globe declines. And like the system is more fragile than people think. Like mm-hmm. that's why this situation in the Red Sea with the Houthis is very serious from an economic angle. Peter Zion in his book, he says like, we would have had another decade to get things together if COVID never happened. But like things are going to come to a screeching halt at some point with like global trade. And not that many countries have navies that can like ship things across the ocean. Only like neighboring countries, their ships yeah. are not, or like their military ships specifically are not set up to be able to like transport cargo ships across the ocean. So yeah, not just not to end on a scary. Yeah. Uh, sorry. <laughs> Yeah. Um, that's fascinating. All right. No, but we'll get into that some other time. Yeah. I think about it all yeah. the time, actually. Yeah. He's an interesting thinker. Although he does end his book, he thanks the CIA, which is the most like wild He thanks thing. the he CIA? Th- yeah. He's like, thank you to everyone in the State Department. And it's just such a wild way to end the book is like, I, I'm earnestly reading this. And I do actually buy <laughs> most of it, but yeah. for, that was just like the most that really intrigues ending. me, man. I gotta give that a read. Yeah. yeah, this guy was just like, man, who loves the CIA? Like, not even people who love the cops love the CIA. Like, they're just, we call them spooks. Like, come on. Yeah, abolish yeah. the CIA. Yeah. <laughs> okay. All right. But yeah, thank you for listening Thanks, and man. have a good week. See ya. Bye.